Attention all authors, both new and experienced, we have an exciting announcement. Presenting Deadhead Review's very first short story competition. The theme is Horror in Hollywood. Horror stories set in and around the glitz and glamour of Hollywood. Your story can take place during any period in Hollywood history, from the beginning days of silent black-and-white movies up to the modern era of big Hollywood blockbusters. Be creative. Cross-genre is welcome. We're looking for standalone no pun intended, Paul, prose fiction <laughs> stories up to 4,000 words, no television, movie, play script, treatments, novel, or novella extracts will be accepted. Patrick and I will be joining L. Turpit, Cassie Daly, S.H. Cooper, and Rich Gerlach in acting as judges. Contest opens September 15th, and entries will be accepted all the way up to September 30th. Prizes include promotional packages, books, editing services, and even a chance to win a guest spot on Deadhead Space to promote your work. For more information or to submit, visit deadheadreviews.com and click on content submission. We can't wait to hear from you. Dead Headspace. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and all other major platforms, including a new-to-this-show, Ghana, India's largest streaming commercial service. I'm, of course, your host, Patrick R. McDonough, joined always by my co-host, Brennan LaFaro. Say hi, Brennan. Hey, everybody. And today, we're joined by author, editor, and so much more, Paul Michael Anderson, how are you, sir? I am still conscious, so that's a good start. Yeah, so, Paul, usually we have a, a baseline question just to get everybody off on the same track, but I'm going to forgo that because I would like to know, if you were to go to a restaurant right now and you wanted to order a carbonated beverage, would you order a soda or would you order a pop? Oh, fuck off. It's pop. <laughs> okay. <laughs> We okay. gave you a shot, but, you know, nice try. Um, the answer is soda. <laughs> no, 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 fuck you. I'm from Western PA, and it's pop. Um, I, When Bracken and I were writing um, How We Broke Together, and we were going through revision, you know, he would write a section, then he, he would send it to me, I would rewrite it or polish it, and I would write a section, then I'd send it back to him. And we'd have running commentary in the comments, and we literally had, like, a three or four exchange war about pop versus soda. Cause I typed pop in the first draft and he was like, the fuck is this? It's soda. And I'm like, fuck you. I'll fucking well, cut a bitch. <laughs> to be fair, me and Brandon are from the same state as, uh, him, Massachusetts. So, uh, yeah, we, we, uh, have a bias as far as that goes. Now you said Western, I know you're from Pittsburgh, but I'm pretty sure in Philly it's the uh, opposite soda, so I'm, I'm curious where the line's drawn. It, you know, in Pennsylvania it's weird. If you talk to anyone in western Pennsylvania, we always forget that Philly is a part of our state. We think it's like part of a Jersey. <laughs> and if you, don't, but don't I've talked to people from Philly, 
Yeah. And they always forget that Pittsburgh is part of Pennsylvania, and they think it's in fucking Ohio, <laughs> like right beneath Cleveland. And that's just a worse insult than saying we're from Ohio. There is a very clear divide between the two sides of the state, and people are ride or die um, with the sides of the state. I mean, I've never really kind of gotten into the whole like hometown pride. I mean, I kind of miss living in the city. I live in a small town now. Um but like some people are like, I came out of a pussy in Pittsburgh, and I I I love the Berg, Iron City beer, and the Stillers. You know, <laughs> I think you just described Matt Light. <laughs> he's a like, he's a comedian from they there. They shower in Heinz ketchup, you know. <laughs> yeah, uh, we've talked to a lot of. I don't. I guess we're a magnet for uh, Pittsburgh people. Like I was just saying, Matt Light, he's a comedian, stand-up comedian from there. Um, and I see a shitload of pictures with him in Iron City beer. His yeah. uh, buddy that runs. Um, what is it from the Berg? It's a podcast where he doesn't talk to just Pittsburgh rock stars, uh, wrestle professional wrestlers, and mm-hmm. he talked to a Penguin player. I, I'm not a huge hockey fan, so I forget who it was. And then <clears throat> there's a bunch of other guys. Um, I don't know what it is, but Pittsburgh has its own interesting uh, collection of people. Um, who else is there? Stephanie Widovich. Stephanie Widovich. Lawrence C. Connolly, Mike Arnzen. Who else is from there? I mean, George Romero. Oh, oh yeah, of course. I want to. I want. I could be so off base here, but I want to say Gwendolyn Keist. Am I cor- Any idea about that? I feel. Yeah, like- I think it's, I, she's from the Pittsburgh region. I don't know if she's from the city. Like I grew up. Like I'm born and bred city. Like I'm Ooh. not outlying neighborhoods. I grew up like almost. I could within walking distance of downtown. Okay. But. When you're from Western PA and you try to explain, like, where you're from, there's, like, a 70-mile radius around the city that if you're from any of that, you just say, I'm from Pittsburgh. So I don't I don't know if, if Gwendolyn is from, like, the city city or if she's from, like, Washington t- County, okay. which is southwest of Pittsburgh. Um, but fine, we'll adopt her. She's a great writer, so we want her on our team. Um, Absolutely. <laughs> So we'll take her. <laughs> yeah, you said you said seventy miles is the radius for for Pittsburgh. I think uh, I think it's about around there for Boston too. Because uh, any if if you're from Massachusetts, you're from Boston. It doesn't matter. You can be from like Western Massachusetts, right on the border, and people are gonna still ask you if you packed the car and have it yet. Um, I live so- in I live in South Jersey now, real quick, and uh, every whenever. Anyone finds them from Massachusetts, they just tell me about how they like Boston or how they had a trip near there. And I'm like, oh, that's that's awesome. I just wanted to buy beer. But uh, thank you. Please tell me more. So, Brian, take over. bud. <laughs> I, I, it's funny that you bring it up because I'm only just now realizing that about 80 to 85 percent of the people we've had uh, as guests are either from Pittsburgh or Australia. That's a weird demographic that we're going for there. <laughs> you are. Um, that's like the nichiest niche you've ever niched. Isn't it, though? Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> we're going to have to branch out, get somebody from Philadelphia or something like that. <laughs> no one so when you guys, <laughs> oddly enough, I have a follow up question about soda or pop. Um, so did you when you guys were arguing about that, if you're going to put it in the final draft, did you guys just like scream and curse at each other and still until somebody won? Or did you like take uh, where where the story was happening into account or how did you settle that? Um, we never in How We Broke really um, 
specify where it was because it is very regional. You go places in the south and every carbonated beverage is Coke. You know, oh, you want a Coke? What kind? You know, Pepsi. <laughs> very weird. Um, and I think we just we kind of just kind of split the difference. Call it soda pop. Oh, okay. or I cut it entirely. I don't know. I can't remember now. I have to look. I've, it's been a minute since I've looked through that manuscript or that book. I mean, the book's beautiful, but after spending so long going back and forth on it, you kind of want to be like, I need some distance. <laughs> yeah, I love writing with Bracken, but I've seen that story. I saw that story so much that when we were writing or revising it, we could quote whole chunks at each other, mm. and it's like without opening the document. And I'm like, all right. I'm like though, like people are mentioning things from standalone, and that's the new thing. It's not even out yet. And I'm like, do you have any? How, do you have any idea how many times I've read that fucking book at this point? <laughs> Nothing against you, but Bracken, uh, I would not want to get on his bad side. He just has to stare at you in a certain way, and it looks like he's gonna hurt you. He does, but then he'll like as he's staring at you, he'll wrap you up in a warm hug, and it's the weirdest thing ever. Uh, <laughs> I've we, heard he gives good hugs. He is a great hugger. Um, you know, I've known Bracken. We met through social media because that's how you meet people now. Yeah. But he was at um, Scares at Care in 2018, and I was so fucking excited because we had read, we had written our manuscript, but we had never actually face to face met. So like, he's in the he's in the author room. He's one of the special authors, and I walk in. and I was like Bracken, and just <laughs> read and hugged him, and he was like, Oh, Paul. <sighs> And like I'm six two. The dude's taller than I am, not by much, but like an inch or two. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I, I feel short. <laughs> I absolutely understand that, uh, Brendan. You got a follow up question for this? If not, I, I got one uh, pertaining to this story. Yeah, I mean, I, I eventually want to get to that baseline question, but I, I'm curious. Um, you know, it sounds like you had a good rapport with Bracken, and that's what led to the you guys wanting to write a story together. Is collaborating with anyone else something you're interested in, or is it just you got to find the relationship first and worry about the story later? It was kind of, uh, you know, I apparently grew balls one night because um, I knew Michael Bailey. This the the original impetus was uh, Michael Bailey wanted to do Chiral Mad Four, and I had been in Chiral Mad Three. And his anthology, You Human, and his anthology, like, Quail and New. I don't know how you say it. It's French. Um, and I'm English. I'm American. Um, and just as provincial as that. Um, but you had to collaborate. And he had asked me, hey, do you know who you want to collaborate with? And we were, he and I were kind of talking back and forth, like, who I would want to ask. But the one that kind of sparked my interest was Bracken, because I loved his stuff. Um, when I was an editor... I almost bought one of his short stories for a magazine I was editing, which I'm not going to name because I'm not proud of it. Um, it's, it was a good magazine, but there was so much bad blood with that press. I, I'm glad it's dead. And um, and I loved Mountain Home, and I loved um, the stuff that was on that one app that was just a, bo- a story app. I forget what it's called, but it was like in ca- the story was like in camera or something like that. So I loved his work. So one night I was like, "Hey, what's up, man?" And we had been friendly, but we had never really been tight. And I was like would you want to write a story? And he was like, maybe. I was like, would you want to write a novella? <laughs> and he was like, you have an idea? I'm like, no. But <laughs> if but if um, if we did and it worked out, you know, I, I, I'm pretty sure I can get us into Cairo Mad 4. And he hadn't been in any of the Michael Bailey anthologies because he had, 
he he writes more of a hard boiled like gritty almost crime stuff. Like he has, he has that crime anthology or crime collection, um, White Knight and Other Pawns. Um, and he's 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 a, a pretty good crime writer. So he was kind of excited about that so we just kind of bounced an idea back and forth and it grew out of us just like hey what if we had it about siblings and what if we put it in a cabin and what and and we need and it, it literally that's how it grew like i could not tell you what was the seed of it to how we got to the actual novella to save my life even if i i could probably dig up the conversation because it was a messenger but it was really just me like eh, why not because i've never collaborated with anyone before i've never collaborated i haven't collaborated with anyone since I mean, Max kind of threatens it periodically. We almost we were one time a few years back. We're joking about writing a, uh, an erotic horror story called Ghost Balls about um, a ghost that tea bags people as they sleep. <laughs> that sounds like a booth original. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, you can tell who came up with that fucking idea. Um, <laughs> I don't know why you asked me. Um, and then we never did it. <laughs> Oddly enough. He's probably um, writing it with Michael David Wilson. Yeah, or he's doing something else with uh, David James, uh, David Michael Keaton, not yeah. Michael Keaton. <laughs> <laughs> he's doing it with Batman, um, the greatest Batman. He was pretty good, although Kevin Conroy is right up there. There you go. But Avon, um, it was it was ridiculously easy because he's an outliner and I'm not. Like when he's writing a novel. I've since learned is he'll like do character profiles, like almost like D and D profiles on his characters. And he'll find a, a, a actor's face or a person's face. that kind of fits how he pictures it. And I am like, fuck it. What's the, what if let's figure it out. And I write myself into a lot of corners that way. Um, but he's not. So the gimmick we kind of figured out to kind of has a happy medium, like soda and pop was, the story is told through a series of Polaroids. They set like they 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 act as the thematic shift of whatever scene we're writing. So we came up with ten photographs, captions, descriptions, and then we just wrote scenes backing that up, to- telling a full story. It's a story of two siblings, a brother and a sister. If you haven't read it, um, and then that's how we figured it out. So we figured out the story beforehand, um, and it was the weird. It was the easiest story I've ever written. Which is weird because it was the first – it's the first and only collaboration I've ever done. Um, and he had never really collaborated with anyone either. He had done something with John Bowden, like a short little flash fiction piece I think, like a 1,500-word piece. Um, so it was kind of a new territory for us, and maybe that was why it worked. It was so fresh. you know, Everything was mm. new, so we were just kind of exploring. Um, but my happiest days were when you know, I'd open up my email and I'd see the latest scene because I knew where he would be going and he knew where I'd be going. But it's like, what did you write? What did you write? Because I want to read it and then I'm going to add – I'm going to write the next scene. So is that how you guys kind of went about it, scene by scene or uh, or Polaroid by uh, – Polaroid by Polaroid? Kind of, yeah. I mean I still have in one of my – um. And my flash drive, because I keep a file of everything, I still have the original breakdown of like here's here's the description of the of the picture, here's what's gonna happen in that scene, and that's literally how we did it. And initially, the only the only two scenes I know for sure I am the first writer on are the first and last, just mm. because I he was gonna start the story. He's like I might start it, and I was like, hey. Can I try something? And I don't mean to like I don't want to step on any toes because again this is new for both of us. I was like I kind of can clearly see the opening scene 
And we've talked about it, but I can, I can see it in my head. I can smell it. I can hear it. Do you mind if I take a shot at it? And he was like, all right. So I wrote the first scene. It was like 2,000 words, and I kicked it back at him. I was like, okay, does this work? He was like, this is perfect. And then he went off. And I and just the way it worked out is I ended up writing the last, very last scene. And um, and then I and and I was like, is this good? Did we did I stick the landing? He's like, yes, this is excellent. Um, and so yeah, we just kind of kicked it back and forth. You know, he'd write a passage, then. He would send it to me. I'd go through it, and like we have certain different turns of phrase. We're v- fairly similar in terms of our voice, but you know we're different ages. We're from different areas. We grew have different pasts, so our turns of phrase are a little different. So we would, I would revise a little bit, write my scene, kick it back to him. He'd do the same thing to me, and then write his passage. And we keep turn uh, track changes on so we could see what each other was doing because. There was always an option of like, I don't really agree with that. But I don't think there was ever an instance where he made a change and I disagreed with it or I made a change and he disagreed with it. And it was just, but it, like I said, it was the easiest thing I've ever done, which, like I said, given the fact that I've never collaborated was fucking bizarre. That is that is pretty awesome. Um, so that was pretty much the whole process. Mm-hmm. Uh, for, OK, wow. Yeah. I mean, and we kind of already knew we had a home for it. Um so there was also that ease. We weren't trying. We weren't investing all this time in something that we were doing on spec. I had been invited to it, Mike, because Michael, Michael Bailey has been my editor now for fuck six years. You know, because I've been in Car. I was in that sci-fi horror Antho Qualia New. I was in Carl Mad Three. I was in You Human. He edited my first collection. Um, I was in Carl Mad Four, and now I'm going to be in Carl Mad Five. So like. I'm, every anthology editor, even when they're very diverse and they're very good at, at acquiring new people and, and getting different voices and own and diverse voices, they all have like this little cadre or corral of authors who are like, you got something. And luckily enough, I kind of lucked into being my, one of Michael Bailey's, you know, not to say he wouldn't say this fucking sucks because he's come back at me with a few like, uh, can we fix this? This doesn't work. I was like, <laughs> OK, please keep paying me. Um, but um, it's always nice, you know. Like John Mayberry has his own when he does guest edits. You can always kind of expect you're gonna see certain people. John Joseph Adams, same thing. Um, and and uh, um, Doug Marino, Marano. Mm-hmm. I don't know how to say his last name. He's a really nice guy. I met him two years. I met him last year. He's a awesome guy, but I never say his name. Or Doug Marino, um, like Dan Marino, just in <laughs> South Dakota. I've heard it pronounced uh, Murano, but I don't know if that's right. Uh, he's gonna be, he's gonna message me. And he's like, you fucking cock. It's Murano. That implies that he, he listens to this, and if he does, what's up, Doug? <laughs> Doug, I love you. Let me pitch your next project. <laughs> <laughs> so I just wanted to ask you about uh, one other anthology that uh, you're in, uh, which is Suspended in Dusk Two. That is, and just before you answer this, it's an impressive table of contents a few authors on there hugh bracken gwendolyn uh alan baxter stephen graham jones uh ramsey campbell did i already say mm-hmm. that yeah i already said that paul tremblay mm-hmm. um uh, gray matter press with tony Re- rivera i how did that come about man because that's that's just like tough that, I didn't even... the one nice thing about putting out a book is suddenly people start paying attention to you Mm. So 
Um, the original plan for Suspended in Dusk One was with I with a dead uh, which now what well, is now a dead press. It didn't it doesn't exist anymore. And so I knew of Simon Duar, I knew of the anthology, but I, I didn't know them beyond that. I've seen them around, we're friendly on social media. Um, and then it, he was supposed to do it with that company, and then they folded. And then Grey Matter and Tony Rivera and um, Sharon Lawson um, kind of swooped in and said, hey, we'll hook you up. But some authors, because there have been such a lag time, some authors dropped. And by this point, I put out Bones, and people were starting to be like, oh, that weird, blonde, sarcastic dude can write. Um <laughs> And like literally the the within a year of within a few months of Bones coming out in November of 2016, I, w- I had gotten invited to like six things. Wow. I was like I, ne- I hadn't never gotten invited before. I was always the guy writing on spec. I'd kind of gone in with Michael Bailey, but I was always the guy writing on spec trying to make trying to get a list of cred. Um, so Simon had. I don't know if he came across the book or he had seen um, the title novella had gotten onto the preliminary list for the Stokers that year. It never made the final ballot. It just got on the preliminary, which I was amazed because it wasn't voted on. That was a jury selection. Oh, that's that's even Um, better. Yeah, someone liked that book. I mean, I was (laughs) I was stunned. Um, So he's like, hey, um, do you want to write anything? I was like, shit, yeah, because one, I'd been in two. Gray Matter Press anthologies before. I'd been in Savage Beasts, where I wrote the story Crawling Back to You. And um, I'd been in um, After Death. And I can't remember the title of the story, but it was a weird future present tense story about um, the personal artifacts you find at the site of terrorist attacks and the psychic residue left behind there. Um, I can't remember what the title of the but the title of the story is, but that's like seven, eight years ago now. So being able to work with Graham Matter again, being in that anthology, because he kind of told me, like, Damien Angelica Walter's going to be in this, Stephen Graham Jones has agreed to stay in this, and I was like, excellent. So I wrote something, and I'm like, I have no idea if this is going to be something you'd like. I wrote about fucking Wendigo, and a mother dealing with the trauma of a dead child. Why'd you write about Chuck? <laughs> I'm just joking. <laughs> I won't, because I, I knew that... His, Chuck Wendig, for anyone that doesn't get it. ...nightly questions to get pings on locations for what houses to stalk. He didn't care about your answers, and it wasn't even about the engagement. He wanted to stalk you. I'm not going to trash Chuck Wendig. Every Star Wars fan trashes Chuck Wendig, and Chuck Wendig is a nice enough guy, but... <laughs> oh, yeah. No, I I, uh, but, I wanted to... I didn't know when I was going to bring this up, but I listened to your Inkeist episode, and... I mean this in the nicest way, but goddamn, are you uh, are you very easy to talk and shit about people? <laughs> I will drop. I say it in the nicest way. Oh, dude, the only part I haven't had a chance to listen to it because my week's been fucking hell. But I remember I was talking. I didn't talk shit about Paul Tremblay. I came up with a scenario where <laughs> a food podcast would be talking shit about horror writers, and I don't yeah. even know how I got. I have to listen to the episode, but I'm like, I was thinking about it when I saw that drop. I was like. Oh shit! <laughs> I think it's but fun. yeah, I'll, I'll I'll talk shit in a second because I've never been one. You know, if I talk shit about you, chances are I'll say it to your face because that's good. I'll fucking cut a bitch. But <laughs> second time you said that, I believe you. <laughs> Let's go um, for the hat trick. Yeah, right. I'll say it for an, I'll say it for another time. But uh, but being um suspended dust too, I was like so happy he ended up liking it. And it was that was a kind of a hard one to write because I did not know 
exactly the kind of mood and tone with it. Like certain stories, I'll be invited to write something, and I'll be like, all right, I got this. Like when I was in Lo- uh, Max Booth's Lost Signals, I wrote a story specifically for that, and I kind of was like, all right, I know what I'm doing. Because um, I know Max, I know his st- his taste as a reader, not necessarily as a writer. Right. Um, and so I nailed it, but that was so shaky. And then he liked it, and it was, and I was so happy to be a part of it. Bracken's story, which I think closes out the book, he read that live at uh, Scares of Care in 2018. And I was like, this is fucking amazing. I mean, I already had the book, obviously, <laughs> but because I was in it. Um, but I'd re- and I'd read his story, but ha- he's a good reader. He gives a mm. good performance. And I was, I was like, so I, I, that's one of the stories I'm really happy with. It turned out really nice. It's one of the stories where you write and you feel shaky about it. And then mm. once it comes out and you kind of get some distance, you look back and you're like, oh, that wasn't too bad. All right. <laughs> when he did, his, when Bracken did his reading, did he move around a lot? Cause I hear like the best readers public. He did. He, he, he kind of moved like. And I say this in the nicest way possible because I am a teacher. He kind of moved like a teacher when he was reading. He was getting into his own text. And it, and it, if you've read the story in Suspended in Dust 2, it's not a big slam bang story. It's kind of a quiet story. It's kind of melancholy. And the way Bracken reads, he did. He recently did a reading for um, that charity anthology for the ACLU. Uh, fuck. It was just it was posted on YouTube. So I was watching it the other day. And it took me back to, like, Bracken knows how to fucking read a story, especially if it's his. <laughs> that fucker can read. <laughs> um, it sounds so condescending when I said it the first time. I had to make fun of it. Um, and so he moved around a little bit, but he was more focusing on his pitch and his pacing and his intonation so that – um, he wasn't over-dramatizing it, but he was giving it the gravitas you kind of expect. Mm. Some people move around a lot. Um, that was – last year I met Josh Mallerman for the first time, and he did a reading from Bird Box. I think it was towards the beginning of the book. And he gets real into it. He has like music playing, and he asks the audience to like close their eyes, and he starts walking around and making noises to get the evoke – to evoke like the emotion. Um and those readers are always fun. Like, um, there's another writer, John Urbanchik. Mm, yeah, yeah. He does uh, Choose Your Own Doom. And he debuted it last year at Scares of Care. And it's a fun read. And it's very interactive. And those are good. But I also like those kind of readings where they focus not so much on the spectacle, trying to wow you with the visual. Because most of the time they do succeed, but I but for when I come to a reading I'm kind of chill I'm kind of in a chill mood. So when I get a, when I hear a reading that is that focuses on the language itself and lets that carry it, then it's all then I I, I I tend to like those more personally. You would not think it like oh Anderson likes the quiet thoughtful readings, given how much how loud I get and how vulgar I get within ten seconds. But I do tend to. Um, like those kinds of readings. That's an that's a really interesting way. I never thought of it. That's why we ask these questions. I did not think of it like that. I have never given a reading, so I don't know what kind of reading I would give. I'm like, I would probably, I'd probably be dog shit. I'd read like an English teacher. I'd be like, <laughs> who wants to get stabbed tonight? What? Yeah, who wants to get stabbed? Don't clap. Oh, shout out my pocket knife. I um. I'm part Italian. Yeah. I'm 50, I'm 50% Italian, 50% Swedish. And I, when I first started teaching, 
I was with a colleague. He was actually one of my English teachers when I was in high school. And he is a full-blooded Pittsburgh Italian. And he was like, Paul, come here. And, I was t- and he was talking. And he's like, all right, what's in your pockets? I was like, what are you fucking searching me? And he's like, no, no, no I'm, 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 I'm seeing something. I'm doing an experiment. And I was like, all right. And I, what I pull out is my keys, a cigarette lighter because I was a smoker then, my cigarettes, a pocket knife, a nail clipper, like a little mini nail clipper. He's like, I fucking knew it. And I was like, what? He's like, every Italian man I've ever known carries a pocket knife, a nail clipper, and a cigarette lighter, even if they don't smoke, in their pockets. I was like, you fucking for real? He's like, yeah. Why do you carry it? I'm like, I don't know. I might need it. He's like, exactly. (laughs) But I had to see my pockets before I came down here because I'm tired. (laughs) So I can't, like, I can't show you the knife I'll cut you with, bitch. Uh Brennan, why don't you ask the baseline question now? I don't know how to follow that up. Segway. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, I mean, you, you're, you're with us and you're tired tonight. And you were with uh, Inkeist and you were tired on, I don't know, when you recorded with them. But, like, within the last week, are you back to work now? Is that what's going on? Yeah. Um, we're uh, fully, how's that? We've been, we've been prepping for the past two weeks. And then school began. And all the prepping we did was for shit. Um, we're on, and where I am, we're hybrid. So the students essentially only come one day a week. So there's one day is A kids, uh, which is like A through L. And then day Tuesday is B kids, which is uh, like M through Z. Wednesday is kind of like a independent study day. So you can get, you give kids like a little work. But they don't have to meet on camera. And then Thursday or Friday are virtual. And that's all well and good. But they decided to institute Canvas, which no one in my school knew how to use. Um, or and but they gave you the option of using Google, like Google Classroom, Google Meet, which a lot of us had used before. But I live in a rural area, so I don't know if it's the network or Google or Canvas itself. But they've all been like skipping and dragging. So half the time I'll be showing kids how to do something, and they're like, I can't open it. Or today, one of the kids opened the vocab assignment, and it was made so every student would get their own copy. But somehow it had gotten switched in the loading to every student can edit. So one class just got all the answers to the vocab work we were doing. And I'm like, (laughs) I don't drink. You tried. (laughs) Yeah, I don't drink anymore, and I don't smoke anymore. But it's days like today I'm like, how strong is my resolve? <laughs> well, I'll tell you, I'm in the same boat as you. We just finished up today our two weeks of training, um, and we will go back hybrid on Monday. And I am uh, I'm absolutely feeling in that same boat of uh, last was probably not going to mean anything come Monday when when kids show up. Our hybrid's a little bit different. We got kids in there Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Uh, sorry, Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday. But, yeah. Uh, it's it's a different group on Monday, Tuesday than it is on Thursday, Friday. But it's I mean, I have been trained in the last two weeks in so many different Google fucking things that I didn't know existed before. I, I can't fit any more Google in my head. I, I tuned no. out after slides. Oh, God, I don't want I, I hate Google. We our tech person. What's worse is in my school, our tech person um, got a job in another county. So she left. And they hadn't hired a new one. What the fuck? So they're just having someone come over periodically from another another high school going, hey, you guys need anything? And you're like, we need everything because the, the, the entire school is burning down. 
You know, I, my only piece of advice to you if you're going back on Monday is, dude, give kids a lot of room and give yourself a lot of room. Like I tend, I've been teaching now. I don't know how long you've been teaching. I've been teaching for 14 years. Yep. This is my 14th year. And it feels like I went back to date square one because I'm a very, I don't, I'm not sitting at my desk teacher. I move around, I climb on desks. I have a bullhorn. Some kid stupidly gave me a bullhorn a few years ago, like a full on bullhorn, not like a little toy one, like one that you can hear in the front of the fucking school. And it's amazing. So what grade uh, do you teach? I teach ninth grade. Okay. <laughs> so, and, and having to sit at my desk or have to divide my time between the kids who are coming in class that day versus the kids who are all virtual. Cause you also have that option. And it's like going back to square one. And I feel bad for anyone who's a first year teacher starting this year. Like, I don't know, I, man, that, that rough. might be easier. I, I I'm going into year number 11 and, um, I, I do music. And now the good news for me is I'm not really doing much virtual except for the kids who are full remote. Um, yeah, I'll be able to see all my kids once a week. Problem is that legally I am not allowed to sing and we're not allowed to play instruments. So that's about 90% of my curriculum. Um, so, so yeah, it, it'll be like, musicals. <sighs> yeah, yeah, I guess. Um, I don't know. I'll let you know if I figure it out. Yeah, good Just luck. Two weeks working on it. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I think about those first year teachers and like, okay, you have over a decade. I have over a decade. So we have, innate bag of tricks that when something goes wrong we can think around the corner a first-year teacher has only the training they've got as an undergrad and you know as well as i do that Fucking really useless that, it is <laughs> it covers maybe one seventh of what you do in any given period you know so like any I, we have a first-year teacher and thank god her department it's a social studies teacher thank god her department rallied around her because like I would ha my first year I taught in Maryland for a year and it was literally they left me to drown because they didn't really want the a bunch of them didn't really want to hire me they wanted to give the job to the wife of one of the other teachers who wanted to get back into the game and the, and the principal didn't like her so she said no so they just made my life a living hell um, and so I didn't have a department thank God this one first year teacher we have has a department rallying around her but like like I said we have that background it's just automatic we know how to engage kids we know how to get them moving and keep their attention usually it's with me like cutting up on something and going on a rant um and they'll be like what's anderson ranting about just let him go <laughs> it's kind of funny um so i you know it, it this week was it, it was uh, rough <laughs> like i like at one time today, I was trying to share my screen so I could show kids how to do an assignment, the same assignment that in one class, it just gave them all the answers for reasons I don't understand. Um, and it wouldn't let me present, but it let my co-teacher present. So I just like, give me your computer. And we just switched computers. Improvise. <laughs> <It was>, yes. <laughs> yeah, uh, dude, be ready to be ready to. And I am. I will. You know, the last thing I'll say on this is the uh, my my uh, superiors have been super good about, you know, don't don't worry about, 
you know, holding everybody to a standard. We're all doing the best we fucking can. And to have, you know, people working with you who understand that and who aren't, you know, up your ass a mile being like, okay, you know, you learned uh, Google Jamboard. By the way, I did not know that existed two weeks ago. You learned Google Jamboard. Okay. You want me to teach you? No. (laughs) Good, because I fucking can't. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But so you. You can't play any instruments. You can't sing. So you just show this is Spinal Tap. I, 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 there, there might be curse words in that. I don't think the five-year-olds would uh, go for that. Oh, More importantly, the, the five-year-olds. You teach little ones. I do. Yeah. Oh no. They might. They might not get the humor of Spinal Tap either. No, we'll just watch Annie 132 times during the school year. It'll be fine. Watch, watch Annie. Watch all the Disney musicals. No, there you know you what? Just show them the clip of when they get the tiny Stonehenge, and they'll be like, toy! <laughs> that is hilarious. Now I want to go watch Spinal Tap. All yeah, right. actually, I'm going to watch it now, too. All right, I'm fucking You guys, you guys want to break <laughs> off and go watch Spinal <laughs> The rest of the episode is just us watching Spinal Tap. Brilliant. Yeah. Fantastic. So, Paul, what I was going to ask you, like, 40 minutes ago, what we usually ask our guests right after Patrick does the introduction is... What got you into horror? Take it any way you like. Um, yeah, I, I heard I heard Max's thing. Um, I mean, in terms of, um, I, I will go the other way and I'll address what fears I have. Is I am uh, terrified of heights. I am. I you cannot get me on a ladder. You can't barely get me on a step stool. I don't like heights. Um, but I'm not. But when I was a kid, I was terrified of horror. My mom is a big horror junkie, or was when she was younger. I don't know if she still is. And uh, so she wasn't like a derelict mother and 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 not and and shoving me and putting me in a little chair and like, let's watch like, you know, the sorority house massacre three. She wasn't like that. <laughs> uh, but it was always kind of around because she grew up in Pittsburgh. Well, she grew up north of Pittsburgh in a place called Oil City. And they got the Pittsburgh channels. And when she was a kid back in the 60s, there was this show called Chiller Theater. With Chili Billy Cardill, who was the weatherman for Channel 11, he was the news reporter in the first on uh, first night of the Living Dead. So that report, okay. that reporter. So they got a little claim to fame. So he showed up, and they and they kind of schmoozed him a little bit. So when it came out, um, Chili Billy Cardill would be like, "Hey, I'm in this movie. It's made in Pittsburgh." Um, so she grew up in horror. So. By the time I was like four, inadvertently, I'd seen like The Fly and I'd seen like a few Nightmare on Elm Street sequels and I'd seen um, Jacob's Ladder. I remember part of Jacob's Ladder (laughs) and like my boogeyman was um, Jeff Goldblum towards the end of his transformation in The Fly. And it's funny because that is now in like my top three favorite movies of all time. But at the time, I would I'd hide under my blankets and like my belief was if i did not move apparently the fly was like a t-rex in jurassic park um it could not see me um but around the time middle school happened i i'd gotten into reading like grown-up books i still think of them as grown-up books i was like <laughs> reading like john grisham and shit because i wanted to see a time kill so i was like 13 um uh, at the time this is 96 and i run out of things so she's like why don't you read the talisman i was like i don't do horror no and she's like, it's more fantasy. You'll like it. And, uh, and to be fair, it's like my favorite book of all time now. And that's actually kind of how it started. And then I realized that Stephen King had read, uh, had written like The Body, which became Stand By Me. 
and I'd always liked um, the Dead Zone, which isn't really that scary. At the end, it's not. It's more of a political thriller, and it, it was a slow acclimation from there. Um, so that's you know. So around the time I was in middle school is when I kind of fell in love with horror, and, I, and then I became the kid who like before he could learn how to drive would um you know saturday nights his mom would go play cards with her friends and i'd hit the movie store and rent a bunch of horror movies like street trash and they live and zombie rednecks or redneck zombies i think it was called um terrible cover or uh the or the stuff or you know i'd rent movies like that get a bunch of dr pepper that was in no way enhanced by other fluids and just like watch movies like all night and that's what i did um and now i'm this broken shell of a man <laughs> did did you ever have a group of friends to watch with because for me anyways it was weird my mom wasn't into horror but like i'd either watch them with her because that was her way of spending time with her preteen and then teenager son oldest son and then um i kind of just started buying them Hunting down all the uh, Friday the 13th uh, at Circuit City, believe it or not. Then uh, closed down, at least on the East Coast, video store called Suncoast Videos. I'd, oh, dude, Suncoast. I remember Suncoast. It was that or Circuit City for some reason that only had copies, uh, certain copies of um, slashers and series that I liked. Yeah. But I'd watch them by myself because I didn't really have any friends that were into horror. Were you in that similar boat? No, I mean, yeah, actually. Um, my mom liked horror, but I didn't like watching movies with her because and inevitably, like, while violence doesn't make me go skishy around my parents, like, anytime there's tits in a movie and you're like, my mother has tits. And it just gets <laughs> awkward. Because then you have to inevitably think about your mother's tits. And you don't want to. Um, <laughs> Thank you. And now, and now Brendan tonight. is taking a drink. He's like, I, I need to black out now. <laughs> I just uh, like your last little disclaimer there. Oh, and you don't want to. That is wrong. <laughs> it Wink. is wrong. <laughs> Unless you are in Alabama. And then it's just a Tuesday night. Um <laughs> Think uh, we have anyone in Alabama listening? Thank God. Not anymore. Fuck <laughs> um, but in any event, so no, I really didn't have anyone to watch movies with. My wife, I met my wife in high school. We weren't like high school sweethearts. We were we were being friends in high school, and she to this day is not much of a horror fan. She likes certain movies. Like she'll watch The Thing with me, and she mm. likes The Fly because. Her thing is she hates jump scares, so she hates all the paranormal activities. She hate like while I've been trying to get her to sit down and watch Get Out, it's just we have such busy schedules that when we sit down and watch a movie, we're like, let's just watch Tucker and Dale vs. Evil again. We're like, all right, or Shaun of the Dead. Oh, um, yep. so I uh, kind of just watched them on my own. My and in high school, I fit into like three different groups, sort of, and I was not really a member of any of them. I, I was the kid who liked horror, who looked like he was going to shoot up his school, which in the age of Columbine was not something you want to be labeled as. Um, I was the punk rock kid because I would – I for some reason, I decided in my junior year I needed to have – like at Walmart, they used to sell Dickies like work jumpsuits. Yeah. And I decided I just needed to have one. <laughs> and I I would just wear it to school, and they're like, are you in Votech? I'm like, No. Why would you think that? Can I can I uh, put a bookmark right here? Because I think this would pique your interest too, Paul. Uh, What's up? You're, Ke- you're a Kevin Smith fan, I believe, right? Yeah. Oh, totally. I saw him live. 
So, um, very jealous. So that was one of the things that I took away from when I moved to Jersey. It's not near where he lived, but I was like, that's hey Jersey. But anyways, uh, for some reason, the, the, what do you call them? The long shorts he wears when, uh, yeah. Um, the, um, the, oh, what's it? The jorts. Yeah. Yeah. Jorts. Yeah. When I got to a certain age in like my late teens, early twenties, I was like, that's my look. I don't know why. It's the worst decision, but I got a lot of them, and I don't, I don't like them. <laughs> I, I had a friend who dressed like that. It was a Kevin Smith look before Kevin Smith was like, because I remember my friend Jason in like third grade. It's all he would wear. He'd wear like the big jerseys, which Kevin Smith kind of wears now when he was kind of, or before when he was getting kind of big, and the the jorts. That's all he would wear all summer and and all winter in Pittsburgh, which used to be really fucking cold. Me. I wear the I still wear the kind of the grungiest clothes imaginable. And I was we bought the house we're renting and we got a realtor to kind of broker the deal. And so she would come over after I was done with work. So I'd get in the regular clothes and just be chilling out. And she never said anything about it. But one day she had me come by the office and sign paperwork. And her office was right by the high school. So I'm in. I have my tie. I'm fully decked out. I was wearing black that day because I like wearing black, obviously. And um, he's currently wearing black for all audio oh. listeners. Uh, right now, I'm actually wearing like a dark gray, but whatever. I'm also <laughs> in the shorts that are falling apart that I don't wear outside the house. Because um, if you see me outside the house, I'm wearing jeans. Um, and I roll up in like this dark black suit, and she and she, and everyone in the office kind of fucking stopped and went, "Who are you?" I was like, I'm, I'm, I'm Paul Anderson. I'm here to sign some papers with Charlotte, who was my realtor. And I go into the conference room where she was waiting for me, and she stops, and she was like, I, I've i never seen you dress like this. And I'm like, what the fuck do you think I dress like in front of students? Do you think I'm wearing <laughs> pajama pants and, like, Bigfoot slippers? The fuck? I, I, was, I found it amusing, but I was also a little insulted. I'm like, I know I dress like – uh, uh, 1996 hobo, but still, I like uh, basketball shorts. So sorry before I really interrupted. You said um you went to Walmart to buy the Dickies, and then do you remember where that was going? No, it's just, you dressed I, up I, like a serial killer. I I dressed up like apparently like Michael Myers before I even saw the full series of Halloween. Um, I just didn't have the William Shatner mask. But I was just one of those kids who just didn't give a fuck. I, I was I fit with the punk rock kind of DIY scene, which didn't really exist in my school. And I, oddly enough, was in video productions a lot. So, you know, I would go off and do film things mostly to get out of class, um, which is ironic now that I'm a teacher. That That is but, funny. But I, I feel like uh, high school, you would have gotten along with high school Todd Keeslin for some reason. Probably. Probably. Um, I was the kid. Well, I was a weird kind of like asshole. I was good at school, but I just had no patience for it. So I would walk out of class and then walk into the te- and at 17. I'd walk into the teacher's lounge, to get a cup of coffee and there'd be a security <laughs> guard in there. be like, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm getting coffee. Are you a teacher? I'm like, no. And then I'd walk out with my coffee um, or I'd skip psychology and sit on the loading dock and smoke cigarettes and do my math homework. I didn't want to go to psychology, but and I, I didn't want to go to class, but I had work to do. I just wanted a cigarette and be left alone. Um, and that would be the kind of kid I was. Like I skip class all the time, but usually it's because I needed to go finish homework or something. Um, I was, it, so I was a weird asshole. 
and I knew the answers to things. So like I had an, I had a history teacher who did not like her job, and I don't think she lasted beyond two or three years. And she would say something wrong, and I'd come on death and be like, no, that is not it. I will cite the goddamn source. <laughs> and then I'd get more coffee. I, I was, a, I, you know, I wasn't the kid who like, you know, the 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 kids you see in high school, you know, are going nowhere. But I wasn't one of those kids who looked like they were going somewhere either. I was the crossroads kid. <laughs> so did you approach it with an attitude of like, well, you know what? I'm going to go into this profession because God damn it, I can do it better. No, it was uh, oddly enough. I wanted to be a teacher for years. I uh, even back then I kind of wanted to be a teacher. Um, uh, you, uh, this is kind of a criticism of myself. I'm kind of an a- I'm just an asshole actually, and I you know and I don't. Uh, it's not that I can do it better. It's like I'm going to do it my way because I want to. Because I'm fuck you, I'm me, which is not really a good way of interacting with interpersonal. <laughs> that's a really bad interpersonal trait to have. Um, I guess it works as an authority figure and it also works as an anti-authority figure, um, which I was in high school. Um, but no, teaching is something I just always wanted to do. Teaching and writing were the two things I was like, okay, I want to be a teacher and a writer. Um, in ninth grade, we had to write a career paper. It was a graduation requirement. You write a career paper in your freshman year. You write a senior pro- uh, persuasive paper in your senior year. And my senior, my ninth grade paper was being a teacher and a writer. That's what I researched. And oddly enough, that's what I became. Wow. I wanted to be a teacher, too. I don't think Brennan does. My dad and brother are. But uh, you had to take uh, morning courses, and I got a full-time job to would uh probably cause me a lot of headaches if I said, hey, I, I got to quit. <laughs> yeah, I understand. <laughs> that um, bank wants your mortgage, dude. Yeah. So let's dive into standalone. Brendan, you want to okay. you want to uh, ask first before I take over? No, I'm, I'm going to make him give the synopsis so that I don't spoil the fuck out of it. So go ahead. Give us the synopsis. All right. Um, standalone. How do I phrase this? Because I'm really – people are really good at comparing it. I've seen a few earlier reviews, and Max Booth has given some early like uh, plot points that like say it way better than I could. I'm terrible at elevator pitches. He tried to um, um, fight with Stephen King online for you. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, saw that. Um, Standalone is a slasher science fiction story where – Every uh, where um, the slasher killers of urban legend jump from one earth to another, all and and slaughter dozens of people, all in the means of maintaining the universe. They're both at their they're simultaneously the heroes and the villains of the world of the universe, um, and they maintain the balance of all of creation. But now something is hunting them down, and if they don't, and if our heroes slash villains don't figure it out. All of creation will perish. Now, I when I first like saw that, I I just because again the first thing that I saw that I remember about this book was uh, Stephen King made a post about wanting to but never will write a book in the per- point of view of Jason Voorhees where he, he dies over and over and comes back to life and. <laughs> Max Booth said, Paul Michael Anderson already wrote that book. 
And I thought he literally yeah. meant Jason Voorhees, but you do reference because a girl's wearing a crystal, Camp Crystal Lake shirt. Yeah. So um, I, I mean, he. I don't throw he, too many Easter eggs into the story because I don't want to be a, a wink and a nod. I, I don't want the winks and the nods to distract from the story. But I uh, threw a few Easter eggs, like uh, the Camp Crystal Lake shirt. Um, one of the kill set pieces I literally lifted from one of the Friday the 13th is where a guy. Um, Jason takes a kid in a sleeping bag and just slams the kid's head into the trunk of a tree. Yeah. I always thought that was really cool. Yeah. Um, so I just put that in my story. I was like, that's neat. Um, but I try to avoid too many Easter eggs. Well, I uh, save the Easter eggs for like the cards. Yeah, we'll get to that too. But the chap, the first, the way it starts out with chapter one, I'm like, that's everything I want in a, a slasher. I love it. And then, just trying to think without spoilers. I I wanted to highlight a few lines, but it talked about the multiverse, and I thought like, oh, that might ruin it. But now I'm kicking myself in the ass for not doing that because you just mentioned it. And it's in See, the that's, that's that's why I I pawned it off. I you know I when I take on a book, um, I really like to start it without knowing too much about it. I think that's kind of the most fun way to go into it. Yeah. And you know, approaching yours. Basically, just knowing it was, you know, hearing it was a slasher that was very, very different than any any anything else I would have read before. I loved how like the the tone of chapter one was just it's, you know, it's a slasher. It's a gore fest. But there's just like something something's off. Multiple (laughs) things are off. Something's just a little bit weird. And then by the time you dive into chapter two, it's like I I didn't expect that. Okay, cool. Um, Um. I mean, that was kind of deliberate. I mean, I wanted I, – I had the idea years ago. I wrote the story last year. Yeah, I wrote the story last year. Um, it was the first story I wrote after I quit smoking for good. Um, and But I had the idea for last year because, I, you know, I, I, one of my favorite movies, and I was, I'm, on, I'm on another podcast talking, raving about it. It's called Behind the Mask, The Rise of Leslie Vernon. I love that movie. And Why don't you plug that it, podcast? Um, Necronomy.com with uh, Donald and James. Um, basically, you take a, a, a movie and you kind of critically analyze, analyze it from a certain angle. And I did it from social responsibility. Because the premise of it, you haven't seen Behind the Mask, is that this group of graduate students want to make a documentary about a killer, a, a would-be slasher killer who wants to become famous. Because in this world, Freddie, Jason, Michael... Chucky, they're real people that have done these horrific crimes. They've just built this mystique where they're dreams, warriors, and immortal demons and stuff like that. Um, and I just – I love that idea. Beca- but even in that movie, they made Leslie Vernon either really charming or they went full villain. And I'm like, can you do both? And so I was like – kind of i asked matt i remember asking max at one point in messenger have you ever seen something like this before and then i asked bracken and he was like no and who are you because it's before we work together um no he didn't say who are you he probably was thinking it though um and so i just kind of sat on it and then when at last year i was like fuck let's write that because i have kind of like the opening that opening chapter i had the first scene of him just going through on a mission um, was kind of set in my head. And then as I went along, the weirder it got was me figuring out how to make it all make sense. <laughs> Literally, I initially had a really grounded story that became really big and weird 
because it was the only way I could maintain an interior logic to the story. Like, because Freddy Krueger, by the end of the series of movies, he's almost like an anti-hero where you root for him. And which is a really disturbing thing to think about because the dude's a child murderer and hinted at being a child molester. And here people are rooting for him like, yeah, Freddy, and there are kids in Freddy pajamas. That's something that fucking happened. And I'm like, that's not quite right. Um, but so I want to make the villains the heroes of the story but still be villains, which means I have to make them empathetic but still awful. But then I had to have villains that were empathetic, like you would understand why they were why they would be going against these killers. And it was a hard balancing. It was a weird balancing act. Like I said how, at the top of this, how how we broke was the easiest thing I've ever written. One of the easiest things. This was one of the hardest because I kept going. Well, wait a minute. How would this work? Hmm. And so it was. A, there was a lot of like in my head thinking about it. I was going to say, did you did you end up doing a lot of like rewriting to kind of find that characterization or was it just a lot of stopping and thinking? Um, It wasn't even characterization. I knew who I wanted my characters to be. It was how I wanted to put it off because, like, you know, the story has a certain pacing and the violence in it. It's probably one of my gorier pieces, my more violent pieces. And I had fun writing the violence. Um you know, I, I revel in that stuff. I'm, a, I'm, I'm from Pittsburgh. We have Tom Savini and Greg Nicotero. Um, so that's that's my home base. But, you know, I have kind of where I'm most comfortable is talking about the emotional horror. And I was like, well, OK, where can I where can I go with that? So I knew the characters. I knew the kind of inner motivation of my main characters. Um, although there's the one character I forget his name now because I haven't looked at the manuscript in a little bit. But he was the sarcastic killer. He was the one who was, always had a joke. And there's one line in that story I still remember. I can quote now because it's been a while. I'm kind of starting to get a little distance from it. And it's like, oh, he'll be deader than Pauly Shore's career, which when Max read it in manuscript, he went, he went Jesus Christ. Yeah, no, I laughed random, at that line too. It was a random sick burn in the middle of this story of confusion. And I was like, that's something that character would say. So the characterizations were down pat. Where I had to kind of sit and think was really with the two uh, characters, and I'm not going to go into too much detail on them, that are introduced midway through the story in the interlude. Because except for the interlude and the coda, the book is written like a Richard Stark novel. Have either of you ever read Richard Stark? I have not, no. He's nope. a crime writer, and he he's the pen name of Donald Westlake, who was a kind of a goofy crime writer. But Richard Stark wrote a series of novels about a burglar, a serial burglar named uh, named um, Parker, and it's really just they're they're almost formulaic. Parker pulls off a job, he gets ripped off by his partner, so it, this novel is a systematic means of him getting his money back. And he is almost a machine, like where's my money? Give me my fucking money, and he'll do whatever it takes to get his money. But the way Stark wrote his novels was he wrote it in four parts. The first part, the third part, and the fourth part were always from Parker's perspective. And then the second part, it was written from the other character's perspective. And that's what I did in Standalone. The first, third, and fourth are all from my one character's perspective. And then I switch gears and jump to other POVs. Um, I knew that was going to be in. But um, – when I got to the interlude, I debated doing one, and I debated introducing some new characters, but I realized I needed to keep it grounded. That was my thing that I struggled with, keeping everything grounded. 
like keeping it, making it make sense um, for the reader. Because if I'm in this one character's point of view, he's not going to understand shit. So I need someone there who's integral to the plot, but I can also kind of act as an anchor for the reader and the main characters and kind of give a little exposition without being an info dump, which is a hard juggling act. And I literally went to manu- went to manuscript to submit to Max debating whether or not I should yank that stuff out. Um, but I ultimately didn't, obviously. I like. How I think you... that works for uh, you know reasons that I won't get into because it kind of you know lays on the spoilers pretty heavy. But yeah, yeah. I, I definitely think that that comes off nicely. Pat, go ahead. I was just gonna kind of echo that. I like how you did it because it didn't. It did at no point. I didn't feel like you were beating us over the head. Um, I just wanted to make a comment. I just uh, went down to look at my limited dvd collection because i do have leslie vernon behind the mask i bought it when it came out and um i don't know anyone else that talks about it so when i saw because i talk with james every now and then and when i saw his post that you guys were going to talk about that i'm really excited i've watched it a few times i like the behind the scenes it's done something for the slashers subgenre that i've never seen before yeah um I don't know if you mentioned it, but uh, I, I do like how it's in two different point of views, quite literally, where it is a documentation, a documentary crew, and then it cuts to like the real thing when they they find out this guy's not choking around, not in yeah. acts. I, I yeah, we go, we talk. I, I talk about that on the po- that podcast. I haven't mentioned it here, but I always found that I was an interesting trick because otherwise, I think it was the filmmakers realizing there that. And this is something that happens in found footage all the time. Why are you still recording when bad shit happens? Yeah. So it, I think in Behind the Mask, it, the filmmakers were like, there is no reason for them to be still carrying around a camera when Leslie Burns after him. Fuck it. We're going cinematic. And I like how they do it. They don't they don't even fuck around. They kind of go, all right, fuck it. We're going cinematic. And they had that crane shot and the music kind of rises for a second yep. as they come down around the van when they're like, the documentary is over, which is a little <laughs> hammy. Like Vincent Price is kind of like tone it down a bit, um, <laughs> but I love I love that movie and I've I've been dying for them to file. They couldn't. They tried getting funding for a sequel. Oh, what? Well, Army. That. Oh, dude, and it didn't quite make it because no one knows about the movie either. People I know have either never heard of it or they love it because it came out like 2006, 2008. Yeah, and around there. Seven. Yeah. I remember I picked it up in like 2008 or 2009. I bought um, it. I, I bought it as soon as it came out, man, because it, I was like, I've never heard of this. Saw it on the internet. It was probably MySpace back then. And when I saw it, I was like, this is like a 80s slasher film dissected. It's a love letter to it. Yeah. And, and Brennan, I don't know if you've seen it, but basically the film crew they see how he breaks down everything, like. This is how I breathe slowly. I practice by being buried underground um, in a um, – it's like a self-contained area where they can breathe, learn how to slow their heart rate down so they seem Sensory dead. deprivation tank. Yeah, and he says this is – he's like, how do you think Jason and Michael wa- – I'm doing air quotes – walk and everyone else is running? Like he covers everything, and that's why the film crew's like – Thinking, all right, yeah, it's some guy acting. But then he goes to a house. He's saying, you scope out all the exits. You see where they could potentially leave. You set them up. So say there's a tree branch on a second story house. 
you, you like start hacking it so when they go on it the branch breaks and you, there's no way no witnesses basically and then he starts killing them and they're like okay this is not fake and then well, yeah i I've talked about this um, on the show before, but I worked at a video store right around 2007, and that's literally the only reason that you know I, I would have missed it otherwise is because I, I caught all those like straight to video releases like during that like short two or three year period where I worked there. Um, but otherwise, yeah, you're right; it would be so easy to 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 miss a really interesting movie like that. Did you What's just funny? say? Did you just sorry, Paul? Sorry for cutting you off real quick. Did you just say that you watched that movie? Yeah. Oh, okay. I, it's so, it's been a while. It's been since like '07, but yeah. Sorry, Paul. We just well, cut you off like four times. You want to talk? Now? Oh no, it's funny. But I want to point out a plot. I love the movie, and it's like one of my favorite movies. But there's a massive plot hole in it. So they lose their shit when he they realize he's killing a but he's going to kill these teenagers, right? Yep. Yep. Like. A half hour prior in film time, not the world time, um, he kills Zelda Rubenstein, and they don't. <laughs> they have no fucking reaction. You ever notice that? I gotta go back. I don't know. I don't. I don't think I did. I was talking about it on the podcast because they watched it so they could talk about it with me, and I had watched it like three times in the past month, and because I watch it pretty frequently. It's one of those movies I go back to. Oh, that's and great. It, was, it was only when I was starting to analyze it from the angle I was going to argue. I was like, wait a minute. Why did they freak out when he killed the librarian? And uh, suddenly I was like, oh. But it was one of those imperfections that actually kind of made the, the rest of the movie shine brighter for me. Like, I love that kind of stuff. I love it when I can kind of see that humans made this and it wasn't created by the Lord. Yeah. Um you know, immaculate. Um, it's one of those little tri- things that just make it seem more human. It's like when um, one of my other favorite movies, a movie called High Fidelity with John Cusack and Jack Black. And there's a line in it. Jack Black says, you remember we had, have you ever seen Evil Dead 2? And he's like, yeah, remember we had that comment about the guy making Beretta shotgun ammo off screen in the 7th century. I'm like, that isn't in Evil Dead 2. That's in Army of Darkness. And but it's like those little mistakes that I kind of makes me love a movie even more. Yeah, and we are so far off the subject of my book, but I don't care. I can talk movies all night. No, that's all right because we. Uh, I mean, we kind of just want to find out who is behind the book or the movie behind the mask. Oh God damn! I dropped it. Good catch, Brandon. Can't <laughs> fucking believe it. Lay I can up. cut a bitch. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. I, I don't know what we were talking gravitas when I when I say it. Yeah, I it don't remember sounds, what we were talking about silly. before this. It does sound silly. Uh, the one character that I really liked and I wanted to know more about from standalone was Castle. He seemed like a sad old man, and I'm curious. It just made me wonder. Well, yeah, if Jason and all of them do age, like, do they ever reflect on everything? I mean, that's why. I mean, and again, I was telling um, Brennan this is. Part of the reason why the book gets so weird is that was the only way I could in my head figure out how to make sense of all the of the hero villain hero is villain and villain is hero kind of dynamics. And so by giving them backstories but making them legitimately evil people, it kind of just got bizarre. I was talking about this, I think it was Max, and I was like, my two favorite writers 
of all time, like they have a special spot on my bookcase where I keep their books only, are Jack Ketchum and Harlan Ellison. Mm-hmm. And Jack Ketchum and Har- Jack and Harlan are or were very different writers in terms of intent, in terms of motivation, in terms of execution. You know, Jack wrote or Dallas wrote really gritty, like real human horror, you know, where like Red is about nothing more than a guy trying to get justice for his dead dog, you know, kind of thing. And he wrote almost exclusively in novels. He wrote short fiction and I have his two collections. I think, well, he has like four, but I have like two of his collections. Um, Whereas Harlan wrote exclusively in the short realm and he wrote things like Croatoan, like all where all the aborted children of the world who are flushed down the toilet end up growing like the alligators in the sewer and they've created their own civilization. And, you know, so writing standalone was me almost trying to marry the two. So Hmm. someone like Castle Castle, there's Castle Frank and Pete. That's the sarcastic character's name. Pete is, you know, I'm glad you liked him, but like it was literally just quick brush strokes, you know. <laughs> of and it wasn't it wasn't like I wasn't I didn't care about Castle because I knew what was going to happen to him and how he was going to interact in the story. It was just like I wanted to. I saw how he acted in his in in my head. I saw how he was going to interact with the other characters, and it was just a quick. Why would he be like that? Mm. Um and the reasons he would are the reasons I give in the novel or the novella. It's kind of a long novella. So like, I'm, I'm glad you liked it. And I'm like, okay, cool. Those quick brushstrokes really breathed in life. Okay. Those were the right brushstrokes. Yeah. You know, me personally of the, of the characters, the sarcastic one, the one who's kind of a loser and he knows it and he's kind of just riding the wave is Pete. Right. Um, I, you know, I was actually kind of bummed, uh, with how he interacted in the story not to give spoilers, um, I think I dodged that bullet because he had such a cynical way of looking at the world, and that's very close to how I see the world a lot of the time. Mm. So he was the closest one in viewpoint to me. Okay. Whereas, uh, whereas Jenkins was very close in my perspective of things. Like his reaction to various things would be my reaction to things. Creators don't always anticipate, can't always anticipate what characters are going to be fan favorites and i'm not saying castle's my fan favorite but he is the most intriguing because i know so little about him mm. i mean and that's and, and and that's good like that's kind of gives you that because that's how we are with people in real world like we don't know their entire backstory and stuff like sure. that um my favorite character me personally the one i kind of enjoyed the most again because he has kind of a similar not a similar outlook. He has an outlook I kind of enjoy and uh, like listening to is uh, Marty. I love Marty. And mm. Marty showed up in another story. Yeah. Um, it, was, it was over in Ink Heist. Um, that's, where I, that's where I actually first wrote Marty. Um, and I love – and Marty I just like talking to. Plus he smokes and I don't smoke anymore. And when I wish, miss cigarettes, I just read a scene from Marty. I'm like, oh, there he is smoking. Mentally, I'm smoking in my head. <laughs> Living vicariously through Marty. <laughs> Why? Well, how yeah. long did you smoke for? I smoked um, from the time I was 16, no, 15, until I was, I'm 30, turning 37 on Monday, um, until I was 34. Oh, okay. And uh, coincidentally, that is when your book releases. Or did Max plan that? We actually planned it. Um, when initially the game plan was. 
he was going to be at Scares of Care. I was doing Nikon as well. I was going to. I'm always at Scares of Care because I just kind of bomb around and hang out with people I met I haven't seen in a year. And um, I was going to do a regional con called Confluence. Um, and then I was kind of at the time I was kind of before everything crashed down for reasons I don't know. I don't know why nothing happened in 2020. Um, people just got wanted to hang out at their houses. And that was going to be like a book tour. And so we were going to debut it at like Scares of Care slash Nikon. I wasn't sure because they were roughly around the same time. And then, you know, people decided to stay home for undisclosed reasons. Yeah. And so we were kind of like, ah, what can we do? Um, around this time, I was talking with Sadie Hartman at Nightworms because we had done a package. I had done a package with her once already. Mm-hmm. Um, they did the exclusive limited edition version of How We Broke. They took it out of the anthology, Carol Mad and Thunderstorm Books did a special limited edition of it, um, which bums me out because it turned out beautifully. And I wish I, I wish it was still uh, I wish it was publicly available, um, except to, beyond to just collectors and that warm thing. So um, they were like she was kind of asking me if I knew of any cool books for the September one September package. And one thing led to another. And. So I was like, you should go talk to Max because I have a slasher coming out in the fall, possibly, because um, we hadn't really settled on anything. So we knew the book tour kind of collapsed because of everything that happened. And Nightworms was interested. And we were like, well, fuck, let's just put it out in September and let's put it out in like the middle of the month. And what's in the middle of the month? My fucking birthday. So let's do it then. Why the hell not? Um and that's really – it was literally that. It was like, okay, let's just do it around there. It gave us extra time to get uh, to get books to people to, so they could potentially blur, like Stephen Graham Jones, Aaron Dries, Jonathan Jans. Um, and and they were appreciative because they wrote great things. Adam Caesar talked about it on his channel. So like they gave us more time for that and it gave us more time to kind of go over the finer details. And I got a little extra time so I could write like – an afterword and an introduction and shit like that to um, the bonus story in the book. Okay. Yeah, it, and we kind of just kind of fell into, well, all right, our book tour sucks. We can't put it out in the summer. Yeah. But you know what? The story kind of takes place in the winter, at least in the one world. Um, so fuck it. Let's put it out in the fall. We'll split the difference. Paul, you kind of mentioned offhand uh, attaching that story. Uh, the one thing I wished for you. So yeah. um, kind of two questions in one. Um, first, what, what made you and, or Max decide to attach that to the story, but also uh, that, that story really, really resonated with me, really hit me. And I, I feel like you must've had to have gone deep for that one. So will you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I'm going to answer the second question first. Um, so as I said before, like having a, Finally putting out Bones Are Made to Be Broken kind of put me on the radar of a lot of people who had would otherwise have never heard of me because it's a book. It's a solid thing. It's not like, hey, so-and-so in this anthology. I just collected all my old previous published stuff, and they got people's radar. So um, Eddie Generous, who runs Unnerving, he had reached out and said – he said, hey, um, I dug your book. Um, he, had, he had read Chiromat 3, and he liked that. And then I, and then he read Bones Made Me Broken and reviewed that. And he, so he reached out to me. He's like, would you be willing to write anything? I'll be like, can I write anything I want? Because it, unnerving, it came out in issue three. I think issue one had, was about to come out when he contacted me or had just come out. 
So I did not know what kind of things he liked. He's like, yeah, generally I like blah, 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 blah. So this was in 2017. Um, my daughter at the time was six. And I always kind of dreaded being a parent. I never planned on being a parent. Um, I planned on having dogs and cats. Um, and But then, you know, we had a kid. And she's awesome. But I never, I always worried about having a kid and being a father because my father isn't good. Um, hi, Dad, if he's listening. Um, hope you're doing well. Um, but one of the fears I had was the realization that I'll never be able to help her from getting hurt. You know, um, everyone has to a greater or lesser degree a rough childhood. Very re- rarely do people have the Ray Bradbury childhoods. Um, and, and then there are people who have, and there are, like I said, everyone's individual childhoods are different. Some are worse than others by, of course. Um, so it was the realization, I don't know when it occurred to me, but I'm like, this kid's going to go to school and she's going to go out into the world and she's going to get hurt. Um, emotionally, I wasn't really thinking of the physical aspect, but then I, I was like, well, what if that didn't happen? How could I, if I could stop it, would I? And so it, the, the story became a what if, and I just kind of explored through that. That story and a story that was in Lost Signals um, called All That You Leave Behind, those are the two that I really delve into my parenting, me as a parent, think kind of considering me as a parent. Because I, like I said, I never plan on having kids. I wrote that, and I kind of sent it off with a little trepidation because I wasn't sure Eddie was going to like it. Because, again, I didn't know this guy from Adam. He kind of just reached out to me. He would said nice things about the book. And I liked what he had done with issue one of Unnerving. So I was like, I, want, I wouldn't mind hitching my wagon to that train. Um, and he loved it, and he ran with it. And that book, that story was the first story I had written where, like, people just started messaging me on fucking Twitter, be like, oh, man, I love that story. I was like, oh, thanks, dude. You know, I'd been on audio podcasts where they tell they read stories and stuff like that, like the Wicked Library. I'd had bones made broken out. But um, it was the first story that was kind of like just off on its own in a magazine that people were like, hey, I really like that. So that came out in years past. And I then I wrote other things. And then when I wrote Standalone and I knew I was going to use that character of the man in the black suit, which in Standalone is called the presenter. He didn't have a name in the short story. Um, when Max accepted the book, I was like, there's something about me. I always feel like, okay, to give you your money's worth, I have to kind of fill it's, it, you know, I wasn't a fat kid in school. I was kind of skinny, but I was also kind of like, I was the kid who always had a joke because I have a trash personality. Um, <laughs> and I always feel like I have to compensate. So trash like, yeah, I totally was actually. Um, so when he, I was like, Hey, would you like to do this? And he'd be like, yeah. And I had the story with Marty, but I didn't, I hadn't put it out yet. And I don't like, I always kind of get weird about putting out a story like in a book that hasn't been sold elsewhere because I feel like it needs to prove itself. Someone else has to buy in order to be like, okay, this is good enough to be collected. Um, (laughs) It's just the way I am. Like I kind of look at anyone who just does an all original collection. I'm kind of like, what are you doing? Why did why'd you do that? Did you, did you submit those stories? Um, All rejects. <laughs> yeah, I wonder. I, you know, you can't help but wonder that. And that, that's probably unfair, and it probably it is unfair, probably. 
Maybe. Um, so he was like, yeah, sure. We can totally do that. That's fine. And he took it in and he, he read it. He loved it. Um, and so I wrote a little forward like, hey, I wanted to show you this is the first time I've ever used a character in more than one story. Um, so here's where else he's appeared. And if you like it, go read Unnerving because they bought it first and he has good taste. <laughs> Eddie Jenner says a hell of a thing. That guy's workhorse. He uh, is, man. Like when he's not promoting his novellas like with Haley Piper and stuff like that and Mackenzie Kiera, I think it's how you say her name. Um, you know, he's talking about sending out rejection or sending out stories and getting rejected or getting accepted. And I'm like, I don't write that fast anymore. And when I did, I didn't write that fast. <laughs> You know what's funny is all the people that I'm talking to now, I, I mean, I'm sure Brennan's not even aware. I've been rejected by most people that we've, me and him have talked with, and I, I just think it's so funny because I'm, I'm, th- I'm sitting back, and that was from the last five, six, seven years, and this is a lesson for anyone that's starting out, I suppose, but I'm just thinking, well... I never read what they put out before. They always suggest do that, and that's when I was starting to really focus on I want to do novels and short stories. And now, seven years later, I'm like, I'm starting to get it. it, it you know, I, there, there's that old chestnut of reading the market, and that's true or not, but fuck, writers are broke. Mm. That's true. Um, I figured they'd either I, like it or they wouldn't. <laughs> I mean, I'll try – uh, you know, I one of my one of my big gets, one of the ones I'm dying to be in is Black Static. I love oh, Black yeah. Static. <laughs> yeah. Um and I've read I I buy the issues and I read them. And I always last a while with Andy Cox. He's the editor over there, but at the end it's just like not really his bag. What's funny is when I was an editor of a magazine and I'd have stories on my short list and I just would have to win down to like five and I had like ten, so five had to be cut. Inevitably, those stories would fucking sell to Black Static. So I know I have the I I'm almost positive I have the same aesthetic as what runs in Black Static, especially since I've read it. But I can't crack that nut yet. Andy, if you're listening, I love you. <laughs> yeah, um, Black, Black Static is definitely on my dream list too. Because uh, I love the stuff they put out. They put out really good stuff. Um, but the few times I've actually tried to like, I'll read the market obsessively. Um, was uh, there was a magazine back in the early aughts, late 90s, called Flesh and Blood. Mm. And this is back in the day when you'd have to send out a self-addressed stamped envelope kind of thing. And I could never get in. I could never get in, never get in. And I tried writing to that market. And then and it's like a realization I've had the past few years. Like, I'm not a weird writer. I'm not a Jeff Vandermeer or Kelly Link. My head just does not work that way. And so me trying to write like that would never fly. And I think I have to kind of come to terms. There are certain markets that as much as I appreciate the stories they run, I don't write that way. Mm -hmm. And I just have to, I'll keep trying, but I'm not going to beat myself up over it. And it was one of the things I say, it was a realization of me. It's like when I actually try to write towards a market, it almost never, I always end up crashing and burning. When I just kind of book it all onto my own little beat, someone always likes it. And I'm like, okay, cool. Um, <laughs> but I was talking with this with someone else, and I was, there was, Joe Hill used to, in interviews, talk about, have an anecdote about how when he really got serious about writing weird fiction and, and horror fiction, one of the things he did is he took a Kelly Link story, the specialist hat, and like he annotated the fuck out of it. He was breaking down why it worked and what worked about it and stuff like that. 
And more power to those people because I know other people who do that. I think Richard Thomas does as well. Mm-hmm. I can't think that way. Like mm-hmm. when I, because I was worried that I'm, I, I, and maybe it's my English teacher thing because I always worry about overanalyzing something to death. Um, is are you forgetting what made the story enjoyable? Like, are you forgetting that the story is meant to be enjoyed? <laughs> um, and not, that that is, I'm not really knocking. I was like, I, I feel like when you, I mean, and as an English teacher, when I was an undergrad and now getting my master's degree, I've shoveled enough bullshit to fertilize most of Texas. Um, it's just kind of, it's part parcel of the game. But at the end of the day, I read because I want to be entertained. And so I write, I'll throw subtext in there and I'll throw a little theme in there and I'll throw some emotional pathos in there. But at the end of the day, I want you to be entertained. Um, and so I always feel like if I'm writing too much to try to get into one market or another, I'm forgetting what I'm supposed to be doing is entertaining a reader. Right. Um, even if I make that reader fucking cry, which I've done a few times, um, <laughs> proudly. One person beta read the story I referenced on All That You Leave Behind, and I made her cry in a Starbucks. Like, she just burst into tears and had to run to the restroom. And she messaged me, like, immediately after it called me an asshole. I was like, <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> Laurel High you know, Tower that, did that terrible. to me. <laughs> um, uh, you know, I love that stuff. Yeah. But, and, but that was me writing, plumbing my own kind of emotional fears there. But also keep in mind that I'm trying to entertain the fuck out of you as well. You know? Right. Yeah, that's that's definitely fair, and that's hilarious. Uh, <laughs> she ran into the bathroom and cried. I I don't know if you heard me, but I said Laurel Hightower did that to me with uh, Whispers in the Dark, her first book. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm and not she sure. hit you again with Crossroads. Yeah. I didn't I, cry you know what? I, I I would love. I would love to garner that reaction. You know, that's that's a hundred times better than somebody saying, "Hey, read your story; it's pretty good." You know, to, to to tell me to tell me that you know I elicited a visceral reaction. Um, what, whatever it. visceral reaction it is, you know, maybe I made you cry, maybe I made you poop your pants. Um, whatever it is, I'll take it. Yeah, right, right. You, you that's that's the emotional payoff, and that's and that was another weird line I was kind of doing a standalone because like I, I told you earlier, I was writing those violent scenes, those kill scenes with glee. I was like, how can I kill someone? It was like when jo- George Romero used to make movies with Tom Savini, and George would call Tom and say, think of ways to kill people. That was literally me sitting down there, like, how am I gonna kill this motherfucker? <laughs> um, you were- you said that you were on in your afterward, I think it was, or the forward. I can't remember. You said you were writing that while you were on vacation, and I thought that was funny because I just so happy without even realizing it um, until I read that, I read the whole book of Standalone on vacation myself, and I was just up late at night um, writing, and then in the daytime, any chance I could – my mom hasn't seen the little guy for a while, so she'd be playing with him, and I'd be like, "I'm gonna go read Standalone," and I would just, I would, I would either do that or be with my boy reading all these kills, and I'm like, "This is this is pretty cool." <laughs> yeah, um, Standalone was a weird. Like I said, it was the first thing I wrote after I quit smoking, and I chewed through so many toothpicks. And I typically write. I don't have an office. I had an office when I first thought of myself as a writer, and I didn't write shit in that space um i'm actually in a guest bedroom that for a time was going to be another office and i was like nah fam i'm good where i write is at my kitchen table 
usually with my wife in the other room, like watching something on Netflix or reading a book. Um, usually after my wife, my daughter goes to bed. Sometimes after my wife goes to bed. And I write there. I don't mind the interruptions. You know, I don't need to own private space. I'm not I'm not going to go right at fucking Starbucks like a hipster or John Mayberry. Sorry, John. I hear the uh, people crying there. Wait, is that yeah, what May- Mayberry writes at Starbucks? Starbucks. <laughs> but Starbucks is used to it. They look at the prices and they taste the coffee. Um, Does Mayberry really write in Starbucks? Oh, dude, when I met him um, – there was a, a regional con, uh, convention called Confluence in Pittsburgh, and they yeah. asked me to help with programming one year because although they advertised themselves as a horror sci-fi fantasy con, they didn't know any fucking horror writers beyond me. <laughs> and I'm like, this is sad. So one year they tasked me with finding horror writers that would be willing to come because they don't pay your way, but they'll give you like a free ticket of admission, which Lottie freaking do. Yeah. And so – I got a bunch of regional people. I got like Gary Brombeck, Lucy Snyder, Tim Wagoner. John Mayberry was still living in Pennsylvania at the time, so he came out. Um, John Joseph Adams came out. Um, anyone else? I'm trying to think of something. I'm, I know I'm forgetting. It's Lawrence C. Connolly came out, but he was Pittsburgh. Michael Lawrence is Pittsburgh, so he came anyway. Wagner's and from then, Pittsburgh? Who was? Tim, is Tim Wagner? He's from Pittsburgh? No, he's from Ohio. I think he's from Columbus. Oh, so you so don't like him. <laughs> yeah, fuck, yeah no. Tim's, Tim's all right. Um, Gary's my boy. I love Gary. Gary Brombeck's one of my favorite people, actually. But anyway, so we're at this con, and if you've never met Jonathan Mayberry, he's like six five and a big dude, and he wears the loudest fucking Hawaiian shirts I have ever seen on the planet. Like Ray Charles would go, "Oh dear Christ, that's loud." When we talked to when we talked to Jonathan, I um. After we spoke to him, Brennan texted me and said, uh, you uh, you fangirled a little bit there. And I'm like, well, it's fucking Jonathan Mayberry. The dude runs basically runs Weird Tales. And I, I got a real soft spot for that magazine, which yeah. you said Black Stacks, like your dream one. I'd love to be on there, too. But my number one is Weird Tales because, like, it, it it's just so cool. I have an anecdote about that. So put a pin in that. Um, so... Um, so he was at this con and he's the quietest guy for being that size. And in the middle between readings or signings or panels, he'd be like, Hey, is there a Starbucks nearby? I'm like, why? He's like, I gotta, I gotta go turn. This is early on in the Joe Ledger series. I think it was like book three or book four. He had to write maybe book five, um, wherever he was writing in 2012. And he would go off to Starbucks and he'd go write for like two hours and come up with like 6,000 words. <laughs> Holy shit. And I'm like, no, no, I write at my kitchen table. Um, but you're talking about Weird Tales. Another one from the day of Selfish Stamped Envelope is when Weird Tales ran from the 80s to like the late 90s mm. and early 2000s. And I sent them when I was first starting to submit. I was getting out of journalism. I wanted to be a freelance fiction writer. So I got out of that and I submitted to Weird Tales. And it wasn't a very good story. I can't I, can, I can't remember the story now, but I know I know it wasn't good. But they sent back a two-page rejection letter where it they went through bullet for bullet. Here's why this story didn't work. And I kept it for years. I don't have it anymore because this is going back now almost 20 years. Um, but it was like a point for point. It was like the first feedback I'd ever gotten from someone that wasn't my mother who always had found something to criticize or an English teacher who was like, oh, this is so good. Um, yay! Um, 
And I kept that. And I was like, I'm going to be in Weird Tales someday. And I'm still not in Weird Tales, but Weird Tales has a weird history. Um, Who was the editor? Do you remember? Oh, uh, Daryl, Daryl, Dar- it's either, yeah, Daryl Schweitzer. Yeah, John Schultz, John and Daryl. George Schitzer. I can't say his fucking name. George. I don't know. Yeah, this is. Yeah, Shithers? this is Shithers and Daryl Schweitzer. Yeah, they were during the '90s and early aughts. Yeah, and they sent me a point-for-point point breakdown of why the story didn't work. And I and some people be like, "Oh, that's awful." I'm like, "No, this is amazing." Yeah, this that's is, what every writer wants. Yeah. And and this was one of my first submissions. So like I ever sent that wasn't nonfiction, wasn't a column or a review or a news story. So it was, um, it was everything to me. So I kept like I said, I kept it for years. I don't have it anymore. All right, I hate to say this, guys, but I'm gonna have to jump off here because my kidneys go to bed. Sure. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, you know what, Brennan, um, you wanna? Do we have a minute, or do you we want to go? I mean, I can hold up, but let's, I was hoping we could wrap this up. Yeah, yeah. No, of course. Okay. So I just want to remind everybody that the contest for Deadhead Reviews, uh, you go on deadheadreviews.com, and uh, submissions are open September 15th to the 30th. Max word count is 4,000 words. We're, uh, we got a theme for uh, horror in Hollywood. Um, for more details, just check it out. Brandon and I, L. Turpit, Cassie Daly, S.H. Cooper, and Rich Gerlach are going to be the judges with p- potentially a few others. Uh, Paul, where can people follow you? Um, they can find me on Twitter uh, under the very inspired handle of P underscore M underscore Anderson. Or they can find me at my website, thenothingspace.net. Brandon, you got any final words, sir? I do not. That's about it. Well, Paul, we certainly appreciate your time. Thank you so much. This is going to be out again on the day of your uh, book release, Stand Alone, through perpetual motion. I said stand alone, didn't I? Yes, you did. I don't know why I questioned that. Uh, Stand Alone, it is out by Perpetual Motion Machine by Lori, Michelle, and Max uh, Booth III. Um, Thank you for joining us. And everyone listening, I uh, I would recommend checking that book out. I had a good time reading it. Thank you, sir. No, no, thank you, guys. Thank you for having me. This was fun. I had a good time, too. And, Brennan, as always, thank you for being my co-pilot. I thought there was going to be a bye. Okay. See you later, brother. <laughs> I thought you froze. So. <laughs> nope. We're doing well still. All right. All right, see you guys. <laughs> All right, take it easy. Thanks, guys. We are in your mind. We are all around. You are now leaving. Deadhead space. I swear I'm sober. You shouldn't have to say that every episode. <laughs> That's true. All right, let me start over. Attention. <laughs> <Brennan>, go. <laughs> Jesus. Do you want? Do you want me to just do it? Yeah, you fucking do it. I'll do it at the end. All right, hold on. Let me bring it up. Take two seconds. Knock it out first goddamn try. Yeah. I suck. (laughs) (laughs) I was listening to the interview with Max from back in July. I was re-listening to it, and I was like, I got to be funnier than that motherfucker. Happy birthday. (laughs) Thanks. I'm now 37. Which, Kevin Smith fan, Patrick, it's the 37 is in a row.
<laughs> that's a lot of dicks to suck. <laughs> ah, man, I have to take off work. I have to get. I have to get right to it. Um, One for every year. Like <laughs> punch in the arm, but. <laughs> Is that what they're calling it these days? I thought it used to be called the sword fight. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I'm going to take us back because this is fucking horrible.